Welcome to the 28th edition of the Vigil for Julian Assange. I'm Joe Loria, Editor-in-Chief of Consortium News. We're having a special edition on Thursday because today was the day that Julian uh, had a day in court in terms of the U.S. request for extradition from the United Kingdom. I um, wrote a piece for Consortium that I'm going to read now to give the details for those who are not up to speed of what happened today. Julian Assange had his first day in court Thursday in his fight against extradition to the United States in a historic press freedom case that could have a profound impact on the future of journalism. He was dressed in jeans and a dark jacket and a t-shirt and Julian appeared on a video screen inside a cramped courtroom in Westminster Magistrates Court in London. He was widely quoted as saying the following, I won't surrender to the US for doing journalism that has won man wars and protected lives. Julian, of course, was arrested on July, sorry, on April 11 after Ecuador lifted political asylum at its embassy in London, where he had lived since June 2012. On that day, April 11, the U.S. unsealed an indictment against the publisher for conspiring with WikiLeaks source Chelsea Manning to crack a password needed to hide Manning's identity. Protecting a source is a routine part of investigative journalism. The U.S. also filed <clears throat> the U.S. also filed a request that same day to the British government to extradite Assange to face the charges, uh, which ha carry a maximum sentence of five years in prison. It was on Thursday that Julian first appeared uh, in this extradition case before Judge Michael Snow. Michael Snow is the same judge that recommended a sentence of twelve months for skipping bail and called Julian a narcissist. A large group of Assange supporters gathered outside the courthouse as well as inside court three, where many sat on the floor for the 10-minute hearing. That's a, according to a report from the Daily Express in London. We're going to be joined later by Patrick Hensington of 21st Century Wire, who was at the courtroom. Now, many reporters and supporters were unable to get into the hearing room because it was moved to a smaller space. It was supposed to be in courtroom one. And for some inexplicable reason, and maybe Patrick later can give us some insight, it was moved from courtroom one to a smaller courtroom three, despite the jam of supporters and reporters who tried to get in. What happened at the end of this 10-minute hearing is that the judge decided there would be another procedural hearing on May 30th, and a substantive court date was set for June 12th. However, it is expected that this case will last much longer than June 12th. That's the day, June 12th, the U.S. faces a deadline to reveal any further charges against Assange, which the British courts must base their extradition decision. However, we had Francis Borden, international lawyer, on um, a couple of weeks ago, and Francis said that uh, there is a rule of specialty that's in the extradition treaty between the U.K. and the U.S., which means the U.S. could ask Britain to waive that, and Britain could send Julian to the U.S. on the charges that exist, just these uh, flimsy five-year maximum sentence charge of supposedly a government computer when, as I said, Julian was only trying to protect his source by giving helping uh, Chelsea Manning get a password. If the way, uh, rule of specialty is waived, he could be extradited on the five-year charge and then new charges could be laid on him once he gets to the United States, to Alexandria, Virginia, where, by the way, Chelsea is still imprisoned. Uh, 
because she refuses to testify in a secret grand jury in which her counsel would not be present to provide more information against to be used, most likely in this, what we expect to be a superside, superseding indictment against Assange. Julia, uh, Chelsea remains in jail, refusing to testify. Uh, and what the U.S. is weighing is charging Assange under the 1917 Espionage Act for unauthorized possession and dissemination of classified material. It would be the first time the act would be used to prosecute a journalist for receiving and publishing secret information. Edward Snowden sent this message to a pro-Assange rally in Berlin on Wednesday. Quote, it is not just a man who stands in jeopardy, but the future of the free press. Julian has already now begun serving an 11-month sentence for skipping bail that was imposed on him on Tuesday in regard to a Swedish investigation of sexual abuse allegations that was already dropped last year. WikiLeaks tweeted about that sentence. Julian Assange's sentence is as shocking as it is vindictive. We have grave concerns as to whether he will receive a fair extradition hearing in the UK. After today's extradition hearing concluded, Jennifer Robinson, Julian's lawyer in London, spoke to the press. She said the following. Today was the first procedural hearing for the extradition proceedings. A process that started back in 2010 when the Obama administration opened the criminal investigation into WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. That investigation has been pursued aggressively by the Trump administration ever since. Despite what you heard from the prosecutor in the courtroom today, this case is not about hacking. This case is about a journalist and a publisher who had conversations with a source about accessing material. I might add who had legal access to that material as Chelsea Manning had top secret clearance. It's about a journalist who encouraged that source to provide material and who spoke to that source about how to protect their identity. This is protected activity that journalists engage in all the time. Any prosecution and extradition of Mr. Sanj for having done so or alleged to have done so will place a massive chill on investigative journalism the world over. On World Press Freedom Day, it's important that we consider the free speech ramifications of this case and what it means for journalists and media organizations everywhere. May 3rd is World Press Freedom Day. How ironic. Robinson concluded, we also need to remember that Chelsea Manning, the alleged source of WikiLeaks material, is in prison in the U.S. despite having her sentence commuted, being held in contempt of court for refusing to give further testimony about WikiLeaks, and is going to be held indefinitely until she gives that evidence in the context where the U.S. is seeking to affect and potentially add to its extradition request. No democratic nation ought to behave this way. Kristen Krapsen, the editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks, then followed Jennifer Robinson to the microphone outside the magistrate's court and said the following. I can point out this is about the right to publish truthful information. It's about journalistic freedom. There is no doubt in anybody's mind that this is the case. Let me just point out that in today's newspapers in the UK, there is a discussion about the leak and about the firing of a cabinet minister for leaking information. There's discussion of whether he had done it, whether it was right of him to do it, etc., etc. I did not see in today's newspaper any discussion about the fundamental right of the newspaper to publish 
the information. That is unquestionable. Nor any discussion about the editor of the Telegraph or that the editor of the Telegraph should join Mr. Assange in Belmarsh prison. Of course not. It's absurd. We are worried about Julian Assange. We're hearing that the situation in Belmarsh prison in Her Majesty's prison is appalling because of the austerity and cutbacks. For the last week since he was arrested, he has spent 23 or 24 hours a day in his cell, most of the time. That is what we call in general terms solitary confinement. That's unacceptable. That applies to most of the prisoners in that appalling facility. It is unacceptable that a publisher is spending time in that prison. The fight has just begun. It will be a long one and a hard one. But we count on the general public to understand the importance of this case and will fight to victory. In regard to the general public understanding the importance of this case, MSNBC in the United States uh, has a poll. It's asking, should Julian Assange be prosecuted for his involvement in WikiLeaks? Now, WikiLeaks itself points out that the poll is misleading because it lists Julian as a whistleblower. And, of course, he's a publisher. Chelsea Manning was the whistleblower. He's had other whistleblowers as the sources for WikiLeaks material. Julian Sarge is a publisher. However, despite that mistake, the response from now nine, about around 9,000 voters is 94% in favor that Julian Assange deserves protection. I should point out that MSNBC has been one of the most virulent promoters of the Russiagate conspiracy theory. And a part of that was that Russia uh, hacked the Democratic emails and gave them to WikiLeaks and that Julian Assange is somehow, because of that, a Kremlin agent. That line has been pushed on that network. And yet the poll that it's put out shows that 94% of its respondents want Julian Assange to be protected. So the message is getting out there. It's only one poll and it's only 9,000 votes, but the message is out there. In regard to the sentence of 11 months that was given to Julian Assange on Tuesday for his bail skipping, WikiLeaks said in a, in a tweet that Assange's sentence for seeking and receiving asylum is twice as much as the sentencing guidelines. The so-called speedboat killer convicted of manslaughter was only sentenced to six months of failing to appear in court. WikiLeaks also tweeted that Assange's sentence is as shocking as it is vindictive. We have grave concerns as to whether he will receive a fair extradition hearing in the UK. On a final note, the Ombudsman of Ecuador has issued a statement it is a national human rights institution, the Ombudsman of Ecuador, and it issues it expresses its deep concern at the decision adopted by the Ecuadorian state to withdraw the nationality of Julian Assange, as well as to terminate the diplomatic asylum he maintained at the Embassy of Ecuador in the United Kingdom. With this decision and the opinion of the Ombudsman Ombudsman's Office, the rights to nationality, Article 6, asylum, Article 41, the principle of non-refoulement, Article 66.14, and guarantees of due process have been limited, Article 77, provided for in the Constitution of the Republic, the Human Mobility Law, and an international human rights instruments. Although, according to the Minister of Foreign Affairs and human mobility, this decision would have been based on the principles of state sovereignty, it is important to point out that sovereignty is not absolute. 
when human rights are put at risk because precisely these limit its scope. It is necessary to remember that the Ecuadorian state granted a naturalization letter to Julian Assange, which can only be annulled by observing provisions of Article 81 of the Organic Law of Human Mobility of Ecuador, which provides that, quote, without prejudice to the corresponding criminal sanction prior to uh, less to legal action, the Human Mobility Authority will declare void the naturalization of a person when it has been granted on the basis of concealment of relevant facts, false documents or the commission of fraud to the law and granting procedure. This decision must be motivated for its declaration. Due process must be followed be notified to the corresponding authorities. In the present case, it has been clearly determined this procedure was complied with and in the effect process was guaranteed. In, regard, in this regard, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights has determined that any procedure that may have an impact on the rights of nationality or legal personality must observe the guarantees of due process, which, of course, Assange did not receive as his Ecuadorian citizenship was suspended the very day of his arrest, April 11. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights says that prior to notification of the existence of the process, uh, this is what, uh, sorry, this is what due process ent entails. Prior notification of the existence of the process, as far as we know, that never happened. A hearing to determine the rights at stake, we know for sure that that did not happen. The right to be assisted legally, that again did not happen since there was no prior notification to exercise a defense and to have a reasonable time to prepare and formalize the, the allegations and evacuate the corresponding evidence. That didn't happen. The right to the actions and decisions of the process are written. I don't know if it was a written uh, order that was given to Assange in the embassy that his citizenship was being uh, suspended. Then there, is a, there needs to be a reasonable time for the procedure. There needs to be the right to effective judicial review of the administrative decision to suspend citizenship and the decision uh, and uh, and they must advertise the actions of the administration. So that needs to be made public. This is the, the element again saying, if the Ecuadorian state fails to comply with these guarantees, Julian Assange has been handed over to the police authorities in the United Kingdom, which he has, a de facto extradition would have been committed, which contradicts Article 79 of the Ecuadorian Constitution, which prohibits the extradition of the Ecuadorian people. That's a very interesting concept here. Of course, Julian was living on the legal sovereign territory of Ecuador inside that embassy. That is not British territory. Hence, the British police could not enter without permission given by the Ecuadorian government. So he was living in Ecuador. Even though the building resides in London, the actual territory is Ecuadorian territory. It's as if he's in the country. And by allowing the police to come in and to remove him, it's this. the ombudsman is saying that is, in effect, a de facto extradition from Ecuador to the UK, which violates Article 79 of the Ecuadorian Constitution, which prohibits the extradition of Ecuadorian people. He goes on to say, on the other hand, it must be taken into account the status of asylum demanded from the Ecuadorian government respect for the principle of non-refoulement, and that means sending a, a person who has legal, political asylum back to a country where he could face persecution, and that's clearly the case in the U.S. The Ecuadorian government must respect this principle in the face of obvious risks to life, liberty, or integrity, which have justified the prolonged stay in the embassy of Ecuador in the city of London, and the Ecuadorian state has not proven that those threats have ceased. That's the reason he was given asylum. The Ecuadorian government made a decision, the previous Ecuadorian government, of course, that he was facing risk to life, liberty, or integrity. Therefore, they gave him the asylum. 
the ombudsman is saying here that those conditions, of course, have not ceased. We see them in action now. As Jennifer Robinson pointed out, what they'd been saying all along since 2010, that there was a grand jury, that he would, would be indicted, and that they would seek his extradition. That has all come to pass. Everything that WikiLeaks and his lawyers and Julian would laugh at has all been proven true. I will stop there about the ombudsman um, statement. I think we got the point. Uh, I'd like to bring in from London, who's been patiently waiting, Patrick Hensing. And Patrick, uh, I see you there. He's the editor of uh, 21st Century Wire. And he was outside the courtroom today. And he's going to tell us what he saw. Patrick, welcome to the uh, vigil. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Uh, good to be with you. So please tell our viewers what you experienced today when you went down to the magistrate's court. Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, the the courtroom, uh, the, the whole problem with uh, changing the location of the courtroom uh, from uh, a larger or a main courtroom to a small courtroom where practically no members of the public uh, were being allowed into what, what's called the public gallery. Uh, and in terms of the press access, a very limited space for press. I'm an accredited uh, journalist and uh, I wasn't allowed in. Uh, as were many other journalists, um, accredited journalists weren't allowed in. So there was limited space. And the question was, um, uh, you know, why Why was that? Uh, you know, the huge crowd turned out in terms of uh, public, I'd say hundreds. Um, uh, there was at least uh, 300 or so or more supporters outside, plus the press pool was massive. Uh, There's probably at least 20 or 30 mainstream media organizations, plus a few dozen alternative media outlets as well outside uh and so uh, why why was it restricted so much and uh the excuse given uh by uh the administrators at the westminster magistrate court was that uh, the smaller courtroom had a video link therefore uh it was the only one that they could use uh so you know this brings up two uh kind of fundamental questions uh one why 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 was julian assange uh, you know only appearing via video link as a terrorist would, for instance, uh, someone in a maximum security prison, why wasn't he there uh, in person? Because it, reportedly he was at Southern uh, Crown Southern Crown Court uh, only yesterday uh, in the flesh. Uh, so one has to uh, kind of guess. Maybe this was to. Uh, and by the way, the the hearing at Southern uh, Crown Court, Southern Crown Court yesterday in Southeast London, that was moved up from May twenty sixth. Uh, to May 1st, at the very last minute, it was just announced only uh, a day or two uh, before, you know, April 29th or something like that. So nobody was able to know. So the public couldn't mobilize uh, for that event. Uh, and so I think this was a political decision, uh, A, to have him uh, appearing uh, via video link uh, on this uh, particular uh, hearing today. So um, and, and so the, the, that that's the one thing. The other thing is, you know, of course, they could organize a uh, a flat screen TV being a link. I'm sure this is capable of doing this um, in the, in the main courtroom. Uh, so this was the excuse given. So it seems to me, Joe, that uh, this was sort of arranged uh, in order to uh, have the least amount of public support uh, there uh, in the courtroom and also the least amount of press uh, being given access to this event. But, you know, from a public uh, support point of view, it was a uh, huge support outside. Um, it was great uh, a show of support. A uh, number of gilets jaunes, yellow vests as, all, as well came from Paris 
to show their solidarity. Uh, there are people from numerous European countries uh, who came to show support outside the Westminster Magistrates Court today for this uh, extradition hearing, uh, which which is the first uh, move in a sort of potentially a long process, which you've already um, laid out there. Um, but uh, you know, yeah, there was there was also 150 or so people outside of the courtroom inside of the foyer uh, up on the mezzanine level outside of this court. So um, you know, it it was huge uh, amount of supporters there. And I don't know if that uh, would have had any bearing, of course, in the proceedings, but certainly in terms of public optics, um, this can't be ignored uh, from the sort of judiciary side, the British government side, but also from, from the media side, the press side as well. So they really sucked the dramatic oxygen uh, out of the sort of the courtroom hearing of what is the beginning of a monumentous uh, um, international legal proceeding here. I mean, this is historic, this legal proceeding, even though this was just the first uh, salvo, um, the first uh, move in a long process. But, you know, to to, to deny that from the press uh, at large uh, and to deny that from the huge public. I mean, this isn't just any case. This isn't just any, this, this has huge public interest ramifications in terms of freedom of the press, which is a fundamental pillar or building block of British uh, society, European society, post-Enlightenment democratic uh, civilization. In fact, that's not an over-dramatization. In um, the United States, North America, every country in the world that's fought so hard uh, to you know, achieve some protection and press freedom uh, in modern times. So that's what this case kind of represents. Um, so to, you know, to, to deny that to the public to the press at large, I think, uh, is very telling. Okay. Uh, Patrick, were you able to follow uh, the proceedings on a TV screen? Did you hear what was going on inside? No, uh, we weren't. But uh, if, you know, at this, um, on May 1st at Southern, Crow Southern Crow Crown Court for the bell jump uh, hearing, uh, people were allowed access into a sort of a closed circuit TV a video room to sort of see the proceedings there. Um, this is what we've understood uh, just from talking to people who attended it. Um, that facility was not available um, oh. at at Westminster Magistrates Court. That sort of uh, uh, luxury was was not not. But, um, you, but you said you said they moved it to the small courtroom because it had the facilities for a video hook. Yeah, a vi yeah, a video link uh, to connect, oh to the uh, Belmarsh to Belmarsh. To, Yes, to Belmont. I right. see. I see. So right. you're making the point that had he been allowed to come in person, then they wouldn't. They could have stayed in the larger courtroom. That Absolutely. doesn't. That um, they wouldn't have needed this video link. So you yeah. have no idea. You're also relying, like I am, um, not in the UK, uh, about what happened inside. Just the reporting, and I quoted from the London Daily Express. I mean, I don't want to do that, but uh, we didn't have access to this. Uh, but it only lasted 10 minutes. I would love to get the full statement if it comes out of what Julian said. Uh, we, that quote is a tremendous one. I, I, I refuse to surrender to the U.S. for practicing journalism. That's won many awards and protected many people. That's a great quote, but I think he may have said more than that. Um, but now your, your point here about the supporters coming from all over and uh, backed up by this poll that I mentioned, I think sections of the public are getting it. And 
What they're getting is something that really interesting. I watched this week an interview that Julian gave in 2010 to the 60 Minutes program in the U.S. Uh, it was a long interview. He was at that time under house arrest in Britain uh, wearing an ankle bracelet. And he it's an excellent interview, and I recommend people see that. It's easy to find on, online. And one thing he said was, you know, he, it's extremely relevant because he's talking about, they're talking about the Espionage Act. They're talking about the U.S. indicting and arresting him. <laughs> they're talking about him being extradited. And most importantly, Julian says that if the U.S. goes down that road, if they do all these things to me, they have crossed over to a dark side, basically. I'm totally paraphrasing here. But they are no longer the United States of America. Uh, at one point, Steve Croft, the interviewer, says, are you, you know, people say you're anti-American. And he said, no, on the contrary. We are supporting the ideals of the United States, of Jefferson, of Madison, etc. And But if the U.S. Extra, uh, indicts and extradites me, a publisher and a journalist, they will have changed as a nation. It, it was something dramatic to that effect. And you can't be overly dramatic about that. This is absolutely the case. As I've said, this is a defining moment. In the history of press freedom, it will be studied for decades after this, whatever happens, because they are taking a quantum leap over this red line that criminalizes journalism, that the Obama administration, for all its faults in arresting and prosecuting more whistleblowers than all U.S. administrations previously, they did not indict Julian Assange because they knew what this meant when the Trump administration um, and we see what they're openly doing in Venezuela, for example, that they also announced this week that the troops are staying in Syria indefinitely, even though Trump has twice announced they would leave. All the uh, typical you know, interventionist and imperial policies that are being continued, that all administrations continue, this one is no less aggressive than any of the others, but they've added to that this attack on the press in the person of Julian Assange. Tell me, talk a little bit about that, uh, Patrick, about what this means to you as a journalist. Yeah, and this is a question that um, you know I was asked a few times uh, by other uh, reporters, uh, you know, and also I spoke about this last night, uh, and we had a meeting uh, at the uh, Central London uh, Baptist Church uh, in Holborn, and uh, George Galloway uh, was kind enough to uh, facilitate that as the MC, uh, and uh, Christian, um, editor of WikiLeaks, also uh, came and gave gave a talk as well along with Annie Marchand, who's a, a former uh, MI5 whistleblower in Britain, uh, who you know, and uh, a number of other um, you know, great people on the panel, Alexander Mercurius uh, from the Duran, uh, and uh, Sheila Coombs uh, from Froom Stop War, Neil Clark, uh, journalist and broadcaster as well, he spoke, uh, and also uh, some uh, other close supporters of, of Julian Assange. Um, who've been holding the vigil outside of the Ecuadorian embassy for a long time. Uh, and uh, Chris from, uh, Christian from WikiLeaks, uh, he, he said something that really opened this up. And uh, he said, you know, this is, a, this is effectively also a human rights issue. You know, and I think his, his rhetoric is, uh, has become a lot more, um, it's, it's opened up to, um, to the human rights side more, um, the social uh, side of this. He said, you know, he's, he... he, he uh, his daughter had his 18th her 18th birthday last night, and he had to leave that to come and speak at this event. But um, commented how you know it is how is this a sacrifice uh, that uh, I'm sure that uh, she can appreciate 
that he's uh, also doing this for her future and the future of other people as well, um, her age. But uh, that, that he was just um, lamenting the uh, abandonment of the norms, uh, the, the things that he himself uh, and many others uh, have got into journalism in the first place, the values uh, and the sort of the things that motivated them to become journalists in the first place. Those are all falling by the wayside. Um, we're seeing this uh, on so many different levels. Um, you know, you talked about the uh, the gangsterism of uh, the current uh, U.S. administration. Of course, different sort of gangsterisms from previous uh, U.S. administrations, but it's particularly um, noticeable now, this sort of flouting of international uh, law, of international norms, uh, and this sort of uh, bullying and intimidation of the U.N. and um, inter international bodies and so forth, all, all the while espousing the uh, virtues of the rules-based international system or international order, which we hear so much about. But what is the rules-based international order? In this case, it's the Hobbesian state of nature. It's uh, might makes right, the survival of the strongest. It's uh, Thrasymachus in uh, Plato's Republic um, in the parable of the ship, um, basically. So you have for, for journalists, this is absolutely a red line. It's so prescient that you mentioned this uh, 60 Minutes interview from so many years ago with Julian Assange, how uh, pro prophetic uh, that that is. You know, th this red line, once it's crossed, and people have to understand, I'm, I'm sure journalists can understand, and Annie Mashon uh, laid out a very, very uh, frightening prospect uh, last night during her speech. The, the, the British government is reviewing the possibility of, of passing legislation that would criminalize uh, publishing uh, information that is already in the public domain from two to 14 years in prison, okay? Now, pr th this has been protected. This has been, uh, you know, leaking is one thing, uh, certainly uh, in terms of the Official Secrets Act. Um, but, you know, once something's out in the public domain to republish it or to sort of, you know, as a journalist, imagine the implications of this. And so this, this looks like it's custom made for a WikiLeaks situation. And, you know, the point I want to make is this is also uh, uh, above, above all, um, as well as being a journalist in a free press issue, how this, how this, uh, this problem has come to pass for the state in terms of uh, maintaining the powers uh, that it wants to accrue uh, in terms of controlling information uh, uh, minimizing, mitigating any potential embarrassments. So th this is effectively a technological issue that has emerged uh, with the rise of, of digital technology and the internet. Um, so this is a technological issue combined with a jurisdictional issue. And WikiLeaks is the uh, quintessential 21st century uh, media outlet, uh, very different from normal, uh, uh, or to quote normal other uh, mainstream media outlets in that it does what it does in a very pure sense. Um, from that point of view, you know, publishing information, WikiLeaks does the heavy lifting, it takes the risks, uh, it protects the whistleblowers. The rest of the mainstream media should look at that and say, what a great service they're providing, you know, much like a newswire service, but a lot more deep um, and, uh, and valuable in the sense of um, leaking uh, stuff in the public interest. Um, they should be, you know, rushing to the defense of WikiLeaks and saying, what a great service. They they do all this hard work for us. They do it for free. And all we have to do is go in and do the investigations and find out what's relevant in terms of the data 
that's been dumped, cables, emails, etc. Okay, that's not happening. Why is that? That's a, that's an interesting question. It's not just political. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna contend that this is also what WikiLeaks is challenging the business model of the the legacy media, uh, the the paid exclusives. And as you know, Joe, and as many other people, they honestly know about how this system works. Not all paid exclusives get published. Look at you know look at the Murdoch press. This is used to bury stories as well. This is the business model, the um, the sordid business model of uh, mainstream media as well, the legacy media. So WikiLeaks challenges this because it does this for free. It puts this out. There's no money exchanged with the uh, sources. Um, this is, in its purest sense, journalism, you could argue, right? Um, and so this flies in the face of a, a, a monolithic uh, uh, you know, press that has been co-opted by the national security state, been co-opted by the corporate state, uh, where, whereby uh, a lot of information ends up in locked in filing cabinets um, in, in mainstream media organizations over the years, or buried or disappeared or ended up locked in uh, archives and warehouses and things like this for years and years. But um, WikiLeaks challenges that directly. Uh, but you know, just on the direct threat question, I'll just say this, Joe, um, that uh, Julian Assange uh, didn't set out to be this person, and certainly Chelsea Manning uh, you know, knew, knew uh, the risks uh, of, of what she was going to do. But both uh, Julian, uh, and Chelsea Manning um, are holding a very, very important line uh, for so many people, not just journalists and media outlets, but citizen journalists, of which there are thousands and thousands uh, more coming online every uh, month. Uh, people who use Twitter are doing forensic document uh, examinations and presenting things as individual citizens. Um, and this affects them, too. So you know, there are people who are doing journalistic work who don't maybe classify themselves as journalists, maybe as enthusiasts or you know activists. They're also uh, in, you know they would be implicated in this new sort of super legal structure, this universal jurisdiction that the United States is uh, projecting and hoping to sort of enforce. And uh, with with the extradition lawfare, spurious uh, lawfare games that you just laid out, Joe. Uh, with regards to Ecuador uh, in this three-way collusion between the United States, the UK, and Ecuador. You know, think about that in terms of, you know, the long arm of the United States. Uh, and it will threaten, it'll threaten countries with sanctions, for instance, if they don't give up this person or that person, you know. So there's no, there's no uh, escape. Uh, there's only a few countries that you could, um, that could withstand that type of pressure. Uh, uh, in, uh, diplomatically, economically, and so forth, um, and, and so the United States is is acting like uh, it's running this kind of international racketeering. Uh, that's not a exaggeration. Look at look at uh, Ecuador banking a four point two billion dollar IMF loan, which clearly was a, a quid pro quo uh, arrangement, and there's another six billion in the pipeline. You know, and you look at what they've done. Fast track, just bypassed uh, international law, Ecuadorian law. Um, the British, by fault, uh, you know, they're taking that by fault. The British are flouting international law just by participating in that. You know, so this is serious, um, and this is what Chris uh, Christian from WikiLeaks was lamenting. 
um, in his speech last night, which is a, a tremendous speech. I, I just encourage people to go to uh, RTUK's live stream on Facebook and you can watch that um, that speech that he gave, which is very personal. Uh, it was completely off the cuff and from the heart. And uh, he really lays out some really important issues there. Well, um, yeah, I haven't seen that, so I will see it myself, and I, re I do recommend others to see it. You know, you're describing what you're describing as the mask is coming off the U.S. Uh, empire, basically. Uh, I think there's one reason why the establishment hates Trump so much is because he, he doesn't play the game of front man for empire, and that's the chief role of the president. He's, he's rude, he's crude, and uh, but he's doing the job, you know, ultimately for them, I have to say. And part of that global reach, as we're discussing, has been around for a while. For example, the Espionage Act, since this 1961 amendment, allows the U.S. to arrest anybody anywhere in the world if they say that they have broken the Espionage Act. The U.S., of course, is sanctioning nations uh, who are treating with Iran, for example, which is, should be their sovereign right. But I, I need to ask you, um, and, and also I wanted to comment about what you said about the Murdoch press. I've worked years for the Murdoch Press, both the Wall Street Journal and the Sunday Times over there in London. And I could tell you, uh, they asked, they buried stories that I uh, pitched to them, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one. So that is the routine way in which the corporate media shapes a narrative that's friendly to establish for an interest, which is more to omit and uh, suppress news than to actual uh, fabricate it. But this law, I was unaware of what you said that Annie was talking about last night. Um, can you tell us a little bit more, because a lot of Americans don't know about the Official Secrets Act, and what we have is the Espionage Act, and there's that Section E that says that anyone who has possession of unauthorized um, classified material, and anyone who disseminates that is can be prosecuted. That's about as close as we get to the Official Secrets Act. What we've got in the U.S., of course, is the First Amendment, which is different, because that's about what's called prior restraint. The government cannot order a newspaper or any news organization not to publish something. But once it's published, and this was established in the Pentagon Papers case, once it's published, they can prosecute. So Julian, no one denies it, and Julian himself would not deny that he had possession of classified material and that he published it. Uh, that should be obviously protected by the First Amendment, but it is not. And therefore, this law, a very bad one, is on the books, but is never used by any U.S. administration, but might be by this awful Trump administration. So uh, that is the closest we have to an official secrets act. Can you lay out for the listeners what the official secret act actually does and how it impacts the press in Britain? And, and again, what this new law would, um, would entail? I mean, the idea that something that's already in the public domain, this is extraordinary. Sure. Um, there's, there's probably people who um, can give a better commentary on the uh, Official Secrets Act than myself. Um, I, I am familiar with it. Eff effectively, what is the Official Secrets Act? It's a kind of a, um, a, gagging, uh, a gagging order that's always there. It's uh, always in the background uh, for anybody who works uh, for a government agency. Uh, works for the state, who has any level of clearance, uh, would uh, fall under the purview of the Official Secrets Act. So it's really a deterrent for whistleblowers um, in the UK. Uh, so you know it, it, anything they talk about, if it's deemed to compromise uh, national security, but maybe not even just national security anymore, Joe, because that 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 word has been stretched out. It's so elastic now. 
the other uh, term that has come in to play with the press with regards to denotices, which you may or may not be familiar with, but uh, I'm sure you are. The denotices, uh, if they come into uh, uh, collision with the national interest, not just national security, but the national interest. So a denotice is effectively a, a, a kind of a voluntary censorship regime which exists uh, between the government uh, and the mainstream media, whereby uh, if a story uh, sort of appears, um, certainly the Alan Rusbridger at The Guardian uh, was one of the sort of last cases where it sort of went against that um, with regards to the Snowden story, uh, but also the WikiLeaks stories before. So they would then uh, have this kind of line of communication with the state uh, agencies to say whether this is potentially a threat to, I mean, it's um, it, that's real press control of the state. That's what exists in Britain. And it's a voluntary regime, but everybody kind of plays ball with that. Um, certainly the big media outlets. So uh, nothing really very careful what they report and if it falls foul of the D notice. So anything could go under the D notice, certainly the Scribal poisoning um, uh, event in 2018. Uh, there was a D notice issued immediately uh, on a gentleman named Pablo Miller, an intelligence operative, who was also uh, the handler, as it were, of Sergei Scribal. Um, so that went out and uh, was disseminated through mainstream media outlets. So no talk about Pablo Miller. So you'll never hear about this person. Uh, in their sort of work with Orbis Intelligence, for instance, that was also involved with uh, generating the Steele dossier, uh, uh, staffed with ex-heads of MI5, including Richard Dearlove uh, and many other uh, former agents, if, as it were. Um, so the Official Secrets Act, um, if they expand this and review this, which uh, according to Annie's uh, analysis last night, um, which is also available on RT uh, UK's Facebook page on that live stream. And he laid out this, they're reviewing the official secrets act, wanting to expand the remit of it to, and, and also the, prohib the prohibition of the publication or possession, as it were, of uh, classified uh, material. But that's, you know, what's, it could, it, could it go from classified to uh, threatening of national security? I mean, it's, it seems to me like we're moving into a time where a lot of these you know, boundaries are totally fungible now um, because of political reasons or a political pressure that's put to bear or a cartel of countries like NATO member states, for instance, operating a, under a sort of a five eyes framework already um, that they would say, well, yeah, it, it's not just classified material, uh, it's just something uh, that could threaten national security or the national security of NATO members collectively. Uh, Theresa May has already uh, put out dictates with regards to total coordination in terms of uh, public statements made for any sensitive national security issue. Uh, this is called the rapid reaction, uh, rapid response mechanism. Uh, this was announced uh, at, I believe it was the G7 uh, meeting last June. Uh, that every uh, G7 member has to be on the same page with anything with regards to Russia or any serious national security incident in terms of their response publicly. Uh, the, all the governments will be exactly on the same page. And I think if you look at statements by Emmanuel Macron, uh, by the U.S. leadership, by Britain, 
by other NATO member states, that's pretty much in effect, um, especially over the last sort of uh, year or so. So this, this total coordination is not only a U.S. issue, it's not just a British issue, but it's also kind of uh, reflected in the kind of the NATO framework um, as well. So again, this, th that's going to make this universal jurisdiction that the United States um, looks like it's kind of leading uh, that sort of operation in terms of enforcing um, and uh, punishing uh, individuals or organizations or countries internationally. Um, this seems to be uh, the, a, a cartel. That's the only, that's the best way I can maybe, you know, describe it. Yes. Now, uh, you, you say that already published documents, as I think you pointed out in your first remarks, that means anything WikiLeaks has already published. And let me make sure if I get this right. This new law would make it illegal to write about what's already in the public domain, which is already on the Internet, which is still on service that the authorities cannot shut down. So they want to shut it down in a different way by saying that we cannot write about what WikiLeaks has already reported. We're running in Consortium News a series of articles. We're digging into the materials that are out there to put out uh, to the public what WikiLeaks has done, the work that they've done, what they've accomplished to shift the focus from Julian's personality, which, of course, the mainstream media is trying to do, to smear him. Uh, that would be illegal then under this new law then, to write up what WikiLeaks has already published. Is that what you're actually saying? Was that what Annie was saying? Uh, it, it, technically, it could. It, it depends if it's retroactive or not, Joe. Uh, ah. if, if, so if, if they do expand uh, the regulations, and this, would it be everything from you know, the present moment into the future, or would this be retroactive? Now, that's also a fair question to ask. Is it going to be, would, would they be so brazen as to make it a retroactive? I, I, everything's on the table uh, with, based on what I've, we've all seen. Uh, unfold in the last, you know, a uh, few months and years. So nothing would surprise me. How outrageous! I mean, if 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 Trump's art of the deal is the sort of the the negotiation uh, method of choice, it would be going for the whole hog, including retroactive, and and then wanting to let the courts and civil liberties groups fight back um, to to make it more fair uh, or less authoritarian in that sense. But uh, but but think about this, okay? This is the important uh, big picture um, of this is that think about uh, Chelsea Manning, what what Chelsea Manning leaked um, in 2009. Uh, and think about the, 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 the trial that Chelsea Manning's already been through. The, at no point during that trial was that was the government. And they had plenty of opportunities to prove that uh, Chelsea Manning's leaks or what WikiLeaks published compromised the sources and methods or, you know, put, put let's say, uh, CIA agents in danger or, or American troops in danger in Afghanistan or Iraq. They, they could have said, made some case, but they didn't. They totally didn't even uh, present anything um, in that. So that, that's the whole, that should be the impetus uh, and the argument from the, from the state side is, and that's the whole point of it. There's compromising sources and methods, putting agents in the field in danger, you know, uh, potentially putting lives at risk of, you know, U.S. troops. And they couldn't make that argument. Instead, what they made was uh, just an attack on journalists uh, for, you know, saying that this is dangerous and potentially this could, 
maybe compromise sources and methods, and this could end up uh, costing U.S. troops lives, but they didn't make any uh, uh, empirical case for this. And so it's, so it's basically like an ad hominem uh, attack against uh, journalists and making that the argument. Um, and so this kind of like an abandonment, uh, let's say, of, uh, of, of kind of a judicial um, arguments on, on the state side. So they don't really have a leg to stand on to support their side of things. And the, the other point I'm going to the lastly make on this, which George Galloway made so eloquently last night, uh, he said, you know, at, at some point, the, 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 the crime of leaking, if it falls foul of the, you know, the Espionage Act or the, whist, you know, the whistleblower's action uh, in the United States or, or falls foul of the Official Secrets Act or the, the, the data was stolen or, you know, the documents were stolen, uh, you know, at some point, what is revealed in the leak um, it trumps by orders of magnitude the crime committed in, in, in actually leaking it. It's, it's certainly with WikiLeaks, we're talking about war crimes, war crimes uh, that uh, no the person who's perpetrated, the people who have perpetrated the war crimes have not uh, seen just, you know, haven't faced justice for what they've done. Instead, the only person facing justice or people facing justice are those who've exposed the war crime. Um, so there's a, in terms of the scales of justice here, looking at this situation, it's very out of balance. Um, and, and I think that's a, that's an important point. You know, people need to have a little, um, levity, step back and look at this situation. Um, and not just this, but other leaks and other whistleblowing activities and ask that question is the is the crime of stealing a document, is that greater than the injustices and, and criminal activity that's been exposed um, in, in the leak itself. Indeed, she was obligated, Chelsea was, as all service members are, to by the Nuremberg Codes to reveal crimes that are being committed. That's an obligation. Yeah. And number two, uh, that Obama administration executive order, which said no, no material can be classified if it's embarrassing or revealed or covers up corruption or criminality. So that was, in a sense, not should not have been classified. A lot of the stuff that WikiLeaks has published over the years from the U.S. after this executive order should not have been classified. But again, there was an obligation on her part to reveal this crime. Uh, and as you say, they didn't make that argument. That's an excellent point, Patrick. And in fact, she was never convicted of aiding enemy. That was one thing. That count, because they couldn't prove it. And yeah, you're saying they didn't even try to make the case that she was nope. aiding the enemy. What's interesting about her trial that I just uh, found out is that they did allow her to make a statement about her motives in trying to uh, let the public know that these crimes were committed. That normally will not happen in a civil trial. That was a court-martial where there's no jury, but there is a jury in a, uh, in a civil trial, and they don't want to hear the jury to hear what the motives are. Like Ellsberg has pointed out, he was not allowed to explain on the stand why he did what he did, why he leaked the Pentagon Papers, why he thought the war in Vietnam had, it was immoral and needed to be stopped and that the government was lying about the fact that they were losing the war. He couldn't say that because the jury could turn around and say, well, yeah, he broke the law, but, you know, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna, to uh, exonerate him anyway. And that's what's called jury nullification. So she was able to say that in that trial and give the reasons why she put that information out. Um, to go back for a moment to the D notices, I recall working on a 
a, a long investigation for the Sunday Times of London uh, with their Irish correspondent about uh, an FBI MI5 double agent who had infiltrated this group, the real IRA inside the U.S. His name was David Rupert. And uh, we discovered that, and I helped to uncover that uh, his background and that he was a double agent. And the MI5 begged the Sunday Times. And every newspaper that I, un I understand, every British newspaper has one reporter that's sort of the designated liaison with the intelligence agencies. So they were begging the Sunday Times not to publish this, to blow this guy's cover. And it was ignored. We did publish the article. So I don't know if they could prosecute you for uh, ignoring a D-notice, correct? It's just yeah, they don't prosecute a, you. Yeah, there's a, it's a gray, it's a fine line, a gray area, a sort of um, uh, unwritten uh, code, as it were. It, it's, it's officially or unof it's officially, unofficially a voluntary uh, a censorship a kind of uh, cooperation arrangement. Uh, between the mainstream press uh, and the government. So, yeah, I don't think by the letter they could prosecute, um, but they could do, who knows, um, because also according to Annie Michon last night, she said the intelligence agencies are not accountable to anybody, uh, despite all of the assurances constantly, oh, yes, we absolutely uh, do things ethically and we're... we're we're regulated under kind of, you know, civil service. And no, it's according to Annie, it doesn't exist. That's just a myth. Um, so if you think about uh, that in the kind of U.S. context and the comments made by Senator Chuck Schumer uh, not so long ago, that if you cross the intelligence agencies the wrong way, they have six ways till Sunday to get even with you. Um, think about that statement. And that's kind of maybe what could be behind the scenes uh, if one was to, uh, uh, you know, uh, go against the, the sort of advice or the wishes of uh, what is effectively an unaccountable um, deep state agency in many cases. Um, so, you know, one would hope, though, that there's white hats within the intelligence uh, agencies that uh, might see things in, from a more constitutional perspective, and certainly in Britain, the same way. Um, and so there's... I'm sure there's that political struggle, Joe, going on in all organizations. Um, yeah. One, one of those six ways is to get the Department of Justice to indict you, uh, which they've now done against Julian Assange. So, and he's been thrown in Belmarsh prison. That's one of the six ways. Another of them are ones that he expressed in that 60 Minutes interview uh, that he feared for him and his staff, and that would be assassination. He openly spoke about that. Um, that's one of the six ways. As far as oversight goes, it was the church committee hearings in the mid-1970s that revealed a, uh, since the end of the Second World War, the enormous crimes that were committed by U.S. intelligence agencies, the NSA, the FBI, and the CIA principally. And out of those hearings, which we cannot imagine ever taking place today, because you've got one side of the aisle completely in love with the intelligence uh, agencies because they went after their, their hated uh, figure Trump. But one of the things that came out of the church committee was that the, the Senate and House Intelligence Committees were set up. There was supposed to be the oversight. And that's also a joke. From when, uh, It is manipulated by the intelligence agencies. Uh, and I will, the best example probably is that when the torture report was to be issued, by the CIA, they didn't want that issued, and they were spying on the Senate Intelligence Committee. That's right. <laughs> they were spying on their overseers. 
uh, first according, of all, according, to Joe, according to Diane Feinstein at the right, time, if right. remembers, he said on record that the CIA had spent upwards of, I'm, not, I'm quoting her, I believe from memory, but $40 million to suppress that report um, because I think she was running point on, 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 on compiling that. So, I mean, that's a, that, that's a big statement by a U.S., a senior ranking U.S. senator. And that just kind of went by the wayside. I watched that unfold on CNN at the time. I think that was in 2015 or something like that. And it just, just washed down the river of, uh, and that's so significant. That, that should have been opened up and examined by all of these outlets. I mean, that, 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 that's a, very, a hugely underreported story and that, her statement. Um, which she made live on the air on CNN. It just got completely, um, you know, washed down the river of uh, the memory hole. Yeah, well, you could add the crime of theft to what the CIA did because they stole $40 million from the taxpayers. The CIA is not, by its statute, allowed to operate on the territory of the United States. They've done it routinely, which is nothing the Church Committee un un unveiled, but they did it in this case. They had a spying operation not only on the U.S. territory, but in the goddamn Capitol building, in the, in the committee hearing rooms, in the off Senate office, uh, the offices uh, of the senators on the Intelligence Committee, they spied. Um, that just shows you the power and the reach of these unaccountable agencies that have to have had a hand in this prosecution. Uh, well, don't forget, we've often quoted that Pompeo remark when he was CIA director that he was going to get us. Assange uh, and WikiLeaks because he called them uh, a non-state hostile intelligence agency. But guess what? WikiLeaks uh, just right now on their top of their Twitter feed has once again, you know, published the link to securely submit to their Dropbox classified or, or any other information that was that's newsworthy. They're still in business. And by the way, the Wall Street Journal and other newspapers copied that idea. They also created a revolutionary way for uh, people to provide sensitive information to a newspaper or to a news organization that was pioneered by WikiLeaks, copied by the mainstream press, who persist in portraying him as some danger somehow to the public. Uh, instead of supporting him, because that's their own butts that are on the line, that's the ones they should be concerned about, number one, right? Uh, and if he goes down especially with this Trump administration or future administration, this will be a precedent. Uh, who knows? There could be, there are going to maybe be worse administrations in the future in terms of press mm -hmm. relations and press freedom. Um, this has to be opposed. You'd have to hope that somebody in the British establishment in the judiciary gets it, but I'm not very optimistic. You, how do you feel about that? Because we had a debate here last week between two of our guests about, about whether, and four of us actually ganged up on one of them, that he was uh, Alistair Thompson, and the, the guy who founded Scoop and Z, uh, was convinced that there's no way the British courts will extradite Assange. They just can't because of the reasons we're, we're discussing here. This is a fundamental press freedom issue. Uh, Britain has too much to lose, too much embarrassment. If they're seen around the world as acquiescing to their master in, the, in Washington to give up a, uh, an Australian citizen to the U.S. for publishing. And uh, how do you feel about that? You, what's your level of pessimism or optimism about what, what's going to happen? Uh, in this uh, Alexander Mercurius, um, who's the editor of the Duran, uh, com website, who's also, you know, a, a extremely experienced and trained legal professional, 
Um, he said that he still holds out confidence. He said this last night that the, of all the uh, branches of government in Britain, that the judiciary is perhaps the least, uh, the most apolitical uh, and possibly the least corrupted by politics. And, um, you know, in this situation, you have to think positively, I think. Um, so I'll take his advice on that. Um, and I, I share his optimism on that. Now, some people will say that the judiciary is wildly corrupt um, on a very deep level uh, in Britain, uh, like it is in the United States and, and other um, leading Western, you know, democracies. Um, but so we still have to have some uh, confidence that no one would want to have it on their legacy uh, to sort of rule the wrong way and really shut the door uh, historically on press freedom to draw that dark curtain, um, whether it be in the, in, in the UK uh, or in the United States, that who, who would want to have that, have their name in the history books should, should this, um, you know, go the wrong way. And in the future, we'll look back at this as a, a really horrible uh, move, um, a draconian move by the state, you know, sort of past the point of no return, as it were, in terms of free, free speech and free press. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing, though, <laughs> I mean, there's some you uh, outlined, Joe. You know, just in terms of the legality and the sort of violation of various uh, international treaties and the sort of uh, you know dirty business going on with the Ecuadorian government uh, with regards to the asylum issue. Um, so many other international conventions have uh, been flouted uh, through this uh, collusion, three-way collusion process that's gone on between these three countries. I think you'll find the same thing in terms of the U.S. grand jury proceedings. Um, uh, has there been a perversion of the courts of justice? Has there been a politicization of justice? And I think it's guaranteed. Um, in fact, uh, 21st Century Wire um, and our features writer, Nina Cross, um, we uh, had a conversation with Alfred Dezeas, uh, who is a former UN rapporteur uh, for Venezuela and Ecuador. And uh, he said that this is uh, what, what's happened is in violation of Art Article 2 of the Lisbon Treaty, which uh, says that uh, people are protected from politicized justice, but also uh, that journalists uh, can't be uh, you know, prosecuted for doing their job as journalists. Uh, and this also violates Article 19 of the International Covenant for Civil and Political Rights. So just on an international law level, uh, massive violations on many aspects of, of, of the, the Julian Assange case um, and WikiLeaks. But in the U.S. law as well, there's huge problems in the U.S., maybe more problems in the U.S. than, than in Britain. But th this is another reason why Britain was uh, MPs, 70-something MPs signed a letter, I don't know if you saw this, to uh, ha reo uh, encouraging Sweden to reopen the sex uh, uh, case against Julian Assange. Uh, and said that in doing so, they have to, you know, to protect future victims of sexual assault and women all over the world who are potential victims. They made it, they really hammed it up and they sent this, drafted this letter. And so this just came out right after he was bundled out of the Ecuadorian embassy. So what, what I saw there, and it was led by the Blairites, um, a lot of Blairite uh, uh, members of the Labor Party, including Jess Phillips. I saw that as a political opportunity to sort of, and encourage Sweden to revive this uh, completely dead end sex uh, misconduct or assault case. And that kind of off uh, offshores the problem for Britain 
of the extradition issue. And so that's a, a really desperate political move um, by those MPs. I can't believe that. And, and kind of virtue signaling with the, you know, Me Too juggernaut as well, you know, kind of using this as really the worst levels of politicizing uh, something for government to do that is just unbelievable. But they try, they've tried it on. And I don't think Sweden's going to bite on that one. <laughs> but uh, so they just want Sweden to, you know, shoulder the burden of being blamed for and, uh, you know, passing off Assange to the United States rather than Britain, who's meant to be a paragon of democratic values, uh, international values and press freedoms and all sorts of free speech to, you know, they, they're not going to have to take responsibility. So from this back to your original question, that's why I do hold out hope, Joe, um, that there are, it's going to be hard for uh, the judicial, um, uh, unless they can lay it on one judge who's about to retire, <laughs> uh, to sort of do the dirty um, on Assange in this case. But in the United States, who, what U.S. judge would want to rule on that um, and be in the history books? That's, that's a big question. I know for a fact that's going to be a difficult one. To go against the U.S. Constitution, um, something that everybody swears to defend and protect is, is when they take the job of any you know, major federal position. Well, gonna, you know, Leonie Brinkema. Yeah, that's that's well, the judge who will do it in courtroom 700 in Alexandria because well, she wants yeah. greenie points with the government. I mean, uh, she wants to defend the national security state. That's her role. <clears throat> and she could argue, and they will, that this uh, it's on the books. Section E of the Espionage Act. He had unauthorized possession and the unauthorized dissemination of classified material. But you know what? Anybody who tweets who tweets a WikiLeaks document has done the same. Are they going to come after all of us? So, 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 Joe, is is that a bridge too far though to go after? I know that she's she's uh, prosecuted all of the uh, whistleblowers from John Kiriakou and Thomas uh, Drake, etc. But is this a bridge too far to go for a publisher? Or journalist for her, uh, that's a question. You know, is that even too far for her? Um, is that a new, a whole new level? You know, that's my what I would be asking. Yeah, that's that's the big question, isn't it? Uh, Drake, by the way, was in Baltimore in a different court. But that seventy MPs, I want to remark on that because I think that was such a shameless and spineless act by those seventy MPs, uh, as you say. They, first of all, want to ship this problem over to Sweden so they can wash their hands of it and say, we didn't do anything about uh, uh, embridging press freedom by having Assange extradited to the U.S. Sweden, it was Sweden that extradited him. Well, what they're doing is ignoring the end result of this. It's not about the sexual uh, allegations that were dropped. It's always been about, as Jen Robinson pointed out today outside the courthouse, it's always been about his publishing activities. And this is all a pretext to get him to the U.S. So the MPs know this. They cannot say, oh, well, we were concerned about his, uh, what he did in terms of those sexual offenses. But we, uh, oh, oh, yeah, there's also this indictment now in the U.S. I mean, come on. They know for sure that if he goes to Sweden, Sweden will extradite him to the U.S. That's the reason, by the way, Assange went in the embassy. Because Sweden would never give assurances that they would not extradite him to the U.S. This is why it's been, this is what the issue has been. All along, I hope you're right that Sweden will not um, induce that one um, complaint to revive the case, and that just doesn't become an issue. But I think that the the judges and with 
much prefer to pass this hot potato over to Sweden. I think you're right about that. Now, you know, to go back to um, what, uh, what Alexander McCurr said uh, last night, that he thinks the judiciary is the least corrupt. He didn't say they're not corrupt. They're the least corrupt. And that's really what a resounding endorsement of the judicial branch that they are the least corrupt. So they are, that means they are corrupt. Now, maybe he's right about that. And he is a lawyer and he's British. So he knows a hell of a lot more about that than I do. But um, they have to understand that they are running up against this fresh freedom issue. I'm talking about the judges uh, in the extradition case. And do they want to be seen, as you said, as the person who handed, as the judge who handed over Assange to the United States to maybe disappear somewhere in a prison forever? And what that impact will be, as Kristen said today in his remarks, there is a story right now in the papers uh, on the streets of London about some cabinet minister who leaked some information and whether, you know, what it was, did he leak it, is he in trouble? But nobody's talking about the editor of the Telegraph, you know, being in trouble for, for publishing it. I mean, yeah. this is exactly the point. So that's why that's why the mainstream press continues to try to portray Julian Assange as not a journalist, as not a publisher. He's not one of us. Now, surely he's his methods, uh, what he's invented, what, what WikiLeaks invented, this secure Dropbox, for example, publishing raw data. Yeah, it's a different form, but there there are different there are different. There are different media out there and different ways to practice journalism, and it's influenced the way journalism is practiced. As I pointed out, the journal and other papers have this secure, also the secure dropbacks, and plus newspapers have been publishing for years now text, the texts of documents online once they went to online format. Uh, so you get raw data a lot of times and a lot of raw documents as well if the reader wants. So that's another thing that the internet has changed in journalism, but the idea that Assange hacked and is not a journalist is key to these weasels getting weaseling their way out of this. I'm talking about the judges in the UK, the authorities in the US and the media, the established media by saying he was a hacker. Like that New York Times editorial the day after his arrest was just abominable. It was appalling because it said, we don't do that. We don't hack the information. Now, of course, the word hack, as, as Glenn Greenwald was the first to point out, Hack does not exist. It does not appear in the indictment. It was in the press release from the Department of Justice. In the headline, that is no mistake. They know people don't read full articles. They don't read full press releases. They maybe read the first paragraph. They look at the headline. So they put the word hack in there. He's a hacker, not a journalist. He's a hacker. And in fact, as Jen Roberts pointed out, he was just trying to help a source that already had legal access to this material to hide her identity, which every every uh, investigative journalist must do. And Robert Perry, the founder of Consortium News, uh, wrote in a piece in December 2010, when it became known that the Obama administration was investigating Assange, that he often encouraged his sources to break the law to prevent the committing of a larger law. It is a law, it is a violation when you've, signed this non-disclosure agreements to give this material to the press. It does violate the Espionage Act, the letter of the Espionage Act. But, but if in breaking that small law, you are trying to prevent the larger war of 
continued war crimes in Iraq, or in Ellsberg's case, the continuation of this disastrous war in Southeast Asia, that was something that that's what whistleblowers do. That's the risk that they take. They know they're breaking a law, but they're doing it because they want to stop a much larger crime that's being committed. And uh, the publisher is innocent in this, should be anyway. You said about the Constitution, whether an American judge, but you know, this has not been challenged, this section of the Espionage Act uh, uh, on a First Amendment grounds. Is that a constitutional part of that law that the government can arrest and prosecute a publisher or journalist for disseminate, for possessing and disseminating classified information without being authorized to do so? That has never been challenged because no one's ever been prosecuted under it that he would be the first. And you would have to think that that would be a constitutional challenge. But this awful Supreme Court that we've got now that's made was made even more awful by Trump. You, you can't have too much optimism that they would uh, come down and say, yes, strike that out of the Espionage Act, because that is clearly unconstitutional. It's a law that while it, it's a law that chills free speech and Congress that enacted it, and that's the actual language of the First Amendment. Congress shall not enact any law abridging freedom of speech or the press, and that Section E does do that in effect, absolutely, even if it's not a prior restraint issue, and that has to be challenged. If it were challenged successfully, Assange is a free man if they have uh, indicted him under that Section E, which is what everyone thinks is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, one, one, would, one would hope uh, from a, a Supreme Court justice point of view that they would be able to look at that and say, uh, is that activity? Um, certainly in the case of Daniel Ellsberg and, and others, is, uh, is that in the public interest? Um, and so what by enforcing uh, Section 8, um, is that in the public interest or is that in the government's interest? Is that in, okay, there's two, there are two different things. And I think uh, we're, we're meant to believe that uh, the national security state's interests are uh, synonymous and equivalent with the public interest. Um, and, but, you know, this is what a high court judge or a Supreme Court judge is appointed to make such determinations that are that fundamental. And it really comes down to a moral imperative, an ethical imperative, um, and that's the basis of the U.S. Constitution, one would hope, anyway. And this is why they're appointed for life to make such um, important fundamental determinations about the nature of, of the U.S. Constitution. And, and so that, that to me is a legitimate up for grabs point, you know, uh, the public interest versus the, the government's interest or the national security state's interest. Because if it's going to save lives, in the case of Daniel Ellsberg, uh, the Vietnam War, you know, curtailing that war by uh, a year uh, potentially is gonna save who knows how many tens of thousands of lives. Um, in terms of uh, uh, Chelsea Manning, um, that leak um, could could have saved uh, could have saved by by uh, drawing down U.S. troops in Afghanistan and uh, in in Iraq would save U.S. Uh, servicemen's lives and save Iraqi lives, many more Iraqi lives, of course. Um, not that that factors into uh, anybody's cal calculus um, who are making these decisions normally these days, but still. So that's the argument. Even if it's in the if it's a public interest and it can save lives, um, is that is is this not worth um, uh, exposing? Is is this level of accountability not worth it? Um, you know, for society, it, it, it's that fundamental. And I think I would like to see um, you know high court judges 
looking at these issues in that in that with that lens we would patrick we would like can, can you still remain with us or do you uh, you need to leave us um i i've got about five minutes so i can, I can okay hang on with you. so let's wrap up uh what happened today in london in the magistrate's court is assange appeared via video link from belmarsh prison he made a very strong statement that he refuses to surrender. He will not surrender to the United States for the act of journalism that won multiple awards and that protected lives. Now, this is, yeah, I was thinking um, uh, during that interview with uh, 60 Minutes that I've referred to, he's, uh, he's uh, Steve Croft says, who was being quite, you know, respectful to Assange, he was saying that, you know, the journalistic community, which he was a part, the mainstream, don't see you as a journalist. They see you more as an activist. And Assange's response was to the effect that we publish information that could help protect people. And if it does that, that gives a great feeling. That's why we're doing this. And I thought back to a guy called Lincoln Steffens. I don't know if you're familiar with him, Patrick, you probably are. But Lincoln Steffens was a journalist in the late 19th century and early 20th century in New York. The autobiography of Lincoln Steffens is, uh, was like required reading. I'm a bit older than you, but when I was studying journalism in the late 70s, the mid-late 70s, you know, we all read that Lincoln Steffens because he was like the first muckraker. I think it was around his work that that term uh, developed. From, so that's a long tradition in American and other journalism to muckrake. What does that mean? To stir up or rake up the dirt that governments and other powerful people are doing. That's the role, the, a central, if not the most important role of the press. Yes, you want to give the sports scores and the weather and the horoscope and all that, and the celebrity weddings and all that garbage. But the if the press only becomes that, and so much of it has, you have lost the central role, which was to hold the government to account. That's what we have to do in the press. It's called muckraking. And you do it in a kind of an activist way, but you're doing it with facts and with you're challenging. You're actively challenging. It's not going out in the street and protesting. It's giving information to people who will go out in the street and protest. It was the media is finally awakening, their, opening their eyes about Vietnam that helped fuel the protests. Although I think that the protests pushed the media to begin with. I think it was the public that pushed the media in that direction. Because they do, they do have to sell newspapers, by the way. So it's ultimately, you know, this capitalist uh, free market thing that that sometimes gets powerful people to do things they'd rather not if they're not going to be able to sell their product. That's one great way the public can influence things, the way the press covers things. But Lincoln Steffens is a guy I would put, I would put Julian rather in the category of a Lincoln Steffens. Uh, the technology is vastly different. Steffens was in the days, early days of telephones and manual typewriters uh, and going out and onto the streets and interviewing people face to face. Uh, Julian has created new technology for to advance journalism, but he's a Lincoln Steffens type journalist. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to call him an activist in that sense, so what? Um, this is what we're all talking about here and why this is such an important issue. And I want to thank you, Patrick. i just give you a, a moment to give some final ideas or remarks. So just to recap again, uh, it was a 10-minute hearing, and then there's going to be another hearing on May 30th, the procedural one. There's a more substantive one on June 12th. Mm -hmm. That's the deadline for the U.S. to add any more charges mm -hmm. because the U.K. could only 
Under the treaty with the United States Extradition Treaty, can only extradite a, a someone to another country based on the charges uh, at that time, and no new charges can be added. However, there is this rule of specialty that is in that treaty and that the U.S. could ask Britain to waive it, and that means they could get him extradited on this five-year uh, maximum charge for intruding in a government computer uh, and then add stuff once he gets on U.S. soil. That, that's still a possibility. And so, But it's also was said in the court, according to media reports, that this will not end on June 12th, that it's going to take a long time, which is probably good news because that puts to rest a fear that uh, Francis Boyle put as a possibility that uh, today he could have been extradited or tomorrow that the court would have said you are extraditable, Home Secretary says you're gone, and that the lawyers for Assange would have to have asked for a temporary restraining order at the European Court of Human Rights in order to prevent that from happening. That doesn't seem like that's going to happen. So that's a glimmer of good news. This is going to stretch out over months and maybe more than a year. And uh, there's always a chance that there's a new government and a new home secretary, by the way. Uh, and that would be an ex a, a big development too. So Patrick, if you want to wrap up, appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, just to add to what you've uh, just said there, Joe, um, that's why I think the, uh, the fast tracking of the bail hearing uh, uh, on May 1st um, is kind of significant in the sense that that's the British government there putting their thumb uh, holding down Julian Assange for pretty much one year. Uh, so it's got a, it's a placeholder and that, uh, it, and you could view that as that gives the United States a year to sort of, um, you know, get their, uh, ducks in a row in terms of extraditing Julian Assange because, uh, you know, <laughs> there was no crime committed in Sweden. He was never, he wasn't charged with anything. He was wanted for questioning, uh, in which he complied with the first prosecutor, uh, in that case, left the country with the full knowledge of the Swedish government to the UK. Then, then the second prosecutor picked up the sexual uh, uh, complaint case in Sweden. Uh, and then they basically sandbagged uh, questioning him. They could have done so remotely. They had ample opportunity. Uh, and in fact, through a FOIA request, which many people are aware of, that the CPS in the UK was in fact um, uh, sandbagging it and also uh, telling uh, to, the Swedes, uh, you know, don't um, basically don't bottle this, you know, don't don't stay the course on this. You're not going to you know, collapse on this one. You've got to stay on side with us, basically. And so that whole delay um, and, and the CPS in the UK not uh, telling the Swedes not to, um, you know, come uh, question him in the Ecuadorian embassy. Um, that's the proof that this was just a vehicle. The Swedish case was just a vehicle for extradition. Um, that was laid out very well by Nina Cross uh, in her article on 21st Century Wire, which is uh, uh, right now at the top of the feature section. But just <clears throat> on that aside, um, the, the, the fundamental point, which I'm going to end with, which is the important point in terms of uh, uh, the pr press freedom, um, which you, you started to articulate, Joe, uh, <clears throat> was the... Uh, the, the the, the, we have a state, if, if the press is not willing to be that um, a watchdog uh, and it's been co-opted or corrupted, corporatized, um, what have you, uh, then what? Then the state believes that it, it, it alone can uh, monitor and regulate its activities. 
So it does. The state clearly doesn't want a, a functioning fourth estate um, in this case. So what, what what what's that called historically? What type of government form is that? It's not the government that we see ourselves as a democracy. It's more like a fascist government, and that's been proven throughout history. This is how those types of governments behave, and so we have to ask ourselves: Is this is this what we want as a society? It's simple as that. It's not what I want. I don't think it's what you want either, Patrick. Thank you very, very much for taking out some time this evening in uh, over there in London for you to give us an insight, having been there at the courthouse. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on and for publishing that Nina Cross. It's an excellent piece, by the way. Thank you for running that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, yeah. Patrick. All the best. Talk to you again.